This evening we continue our study in the book of Revelation. We are looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we begin now by looking at the first of seven churches that are specifically addressed by Jesus here in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is divided into three sections, and those sections are found in verse 19 of chapter 1, if you'd like to look at there with me. As Jesus is instructing John, who is currently as an exile on the island of Patmos, he instructs John here at the end of chapter 1, to write therefore the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. Those things that you have seen are recorded for us in chapter 1. Those things that are are these addressed to the seven churches that are found in chapters 2 and 3. And those things that are to take place after this is the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 22. So if you like to outline, uh, that's a great outline given to us there Uh, for our study of the book of Revelation. The focal point of this book is the return of Jesus Christ. He is the center of all that takes place here in the book of Revelation. And as we take a quick flyover before we begin addressing the seven churches, we begin in chapter 1 as we have left John on the island of Patmos receiving a vision that he has been now given Uh, to see and to enjoy and to record uh, by Jesus through an angel, and he is now uh, documenting that vision. He is recording that vision, and as a result, he is now moving to addressing the seven churches in which Jesus said specifically must be addressed. And those seven churches are found in chapters 2 and 3. After that, John is then taken to heaven in chapter 4, verse 1. And in chapters 4 and 5, we get this rare glimpse into the throne room of God uh, given to us through words uh, depicted in such a majestic way. I can't wait to get there and to be in the throne room of God with you all and looking at it from John's point of view and perspective and the manner in which he recorded it. And then from chapter 6... On to chapter 19. It begins with a series of seals being loosened by the hand of Christ and judgment occurring on the earth. This period of time from chapter 6 to chapter 19 is a period of time promised in the book of Daniel uh, stating that a 77-year period of time would be set aside for the dealing with the nation of Israel. 69 of those seven-year periods have already occurred. The last one is outlined for us and articulated for us in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. It is still yet to come. It is still future. And we are given quite a bit of information about a time that yet has not taken place. However, though, there are a lot of Bible students who enjoy studying that particular section of the book of Revelation, and to get there, they drive a little bit fast through chapters 2 and 3. You know, some have stated that chapters 2 and 3 are like driving through um, Iowa on your way to the Rocky Mountains. You just want to get there, you know. You don't want to... Iowa, it's flat and corn. You've seen Iowa, right? Right? Look at everybody's shaking their head. It's almost as like Indiana. 
Uh, it's the same thing. Pennsylvania is pretty long, but there's still some pretty things to see on your way to New York. But, you know, or if you're flying, it's one of those flyover states, you know, uh, until you get to your destination. However, though, chapters 2 and 3 are so important to you and I tonight. Because Jesus is addressing seven different churches for us to learn from. He is giving his perspective on seven different churches that were currently active at the time of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, at the time that this uh, book was written. Okay? And so we have a lot that we can learn from these uh, particular seven churches. And as we go through them, there are many scholars who hold to a panoramic view or history of the church, saying that the church started in in the essence of Ephesus and will end in the essence of Laodicea. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think it's incomplete. And the reason I say that is because Ephesus was not the only church that was active at the time that this book was written. All seven of them were. Do you see what I'm saying? So to say that Ephesus is the only model of the church in its beginning phases, um, I would hope not, because there were six others that were all active at the exact same time, including Laodicea. So I don't want to miss the individual integrity of each one of these churches by just stating simply that this is a a panoramic view of church history. So we are going to stop, and maybe uh, you had a a dad like that, took you on a road trip, you know, and wanted to stop at every landmark on the way to Disney World, right? I I was there, you know. If, If my dad could find some attraction on the way, he'd stop there. He'd stop there. Come on, we're going through Kentucky on the way to Florida. We're going to go see the biggest spoon ever. Dad, I don't care. I want to go see Mickey. All right? Let's just get there. But we are. We're going to look at these seven churches very closely because I think there's a lot for you and I to learn from these seven churches. One wrote this. The basic principle of applying these letters to ourselves and others today thus seems to be, if the shoe fits, wear it. To whatever degree our lives or churches reflect the symptoms uh, and uh, situations to any of the churches the risen Lord addresses in these letters, we must take heed to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now remember, this was written in one letter. So as the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation was being read by the churches, it wasn't only the church of Ephesus that read about themselves, but the other six churches did also, didn't they? It wasn't just Laodicea that read about itself, but so did the other six churches. So we have to understand that these were meant to be learned from. Jesus gives uh, them an address. He addresses them in a very specific manner concerning an attribute of his character, which we'll talk about in a moment. Then he moves on to the uh, approval. And the approval is what they are doing well, what they are doing good. Then he moves on to the accusation because he has found that there is something wrong that needs to be addressed within the church. And then he leaves 
uh, the, their particular church with an admonition, encouraging them to correct something that has gone astray. Let's begin by reading our text. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He begins by addressing this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities at that time. It had a population of almost 250,000, which was quite large. Understand that a city was required uh, to be uh, supported and sustained on agricultural means. And so whatever number of people you had uh, centrally located in one area, you needed agriculture, you needed a, 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 a quite a bit of agriculture to support 250,000 people. So it was a very large city for that time. And within the city of Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana. And in the center of this temple was some of the most pagan worship that took place in the region of Asia Minor. For example, men and women from all over Asia Minor came to Ephesus to worship within the temple there to the goddess of Artemis, and, uh, and therefore they um, knew it very well. It was a place that people frequented. It was a very well-known city at that time. It is also a city that we are given much information about within the Bible itself, which is always our first authority in all manners, uh, spiritual and history. And this way, the Bible gives us a lot of indication that the city of Ephesus uh, was a city that Paul the Apostle himself began a work within. And you can read about that in Acts chapters 19 and 20 for yourself. The church has been going... Since the 60s, 60 ADs, it is now late or early 90 AD. And in those 30 years, the church has been growing, it has been serving, it has been sacrificing, it has been steadfast, and it has been separate. And in those 30 years, they had moved away from, they have abandoned the love that they had at first. 
And we're going to talk about that English rendering because I know for many of you, that sounds very different than your first love. And I'm going to explain why it is rendered this way in the Greek. That being said, Jesus is already bringing to their attention an area that needs correction. And though they're accomplished in many different ways, and they have much going for them, this one thing is so um, so grave and such in need of change that he says, I will remove the lampstand from your midst. What does that mean? It means that I will no longer be present among you. I will not recognize you as a gathering. I will not recognize you as one of my churches. A very serious, serious consequence to a behavior that isn't repented of. Now, we must learn from this. And I think the church of Ephesus had a lot, good, a lot of good things going for them, but this one thing that Jesus brings to their attention is so great that it must be addressed. As we begin in verse 1, we see that this church in Ephesus, again, the same church, the same place that Paul planted, And if you remember from the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul gets there, he finds 12 disciples. And these these individuals hadn't even heard of the baptism uh, into Christ. They were simply operating under the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance. Paul brings it to their attention and says, no, there's more now. And he furthers them along and then baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They prophesy, they speak in tongues, and a work begins there in Ephesus. And it was plagued by all different kinds of problems. And and one of the things that they dealt with very early on is demon activity. How's that for church planting? Uh, You get into a new area, you begin to uh, a new church, it starts with 12 people, and as it begins to grow, uh, the very first thing that they discover is that there are demon-possessed people there in Ephesus, and some try to handle these demons on their own. The demons do not recognize these individuals. They recognize Paul, they recognize Jesus and his name, but they do not recognize the others who are trying to cast them out. The demon-possessed people beat up those guys. I'm giving you a quick flyover. And they go off running, and Paul's left to deal with it, and so on and so forth. As you get into the, the latter part of Acts chapter 19, the work has begun uh, so greatly there in Ephesus that it actually changes the economy. It has such an impact on the city that it changes the city's economy where craftsmen and store owners are absolutely ticked off at Paul and his companions. In fact, Paul is so notorious and has such a reputation preceding him that all of the shop owners have heard of him. And everywhere that Paul goes preaching the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son, who died and rose again, in every one of the cities there is one trade that kept folding, kept declining, um, stocks plummeted afterwards, and it was that of idol making. And one of the things they accused Paul of was that, you know, Paul comes in and tells everybody 
that these gods that are made by hands aren't really gods. Think about that for a moment. The little gods that we all worship aren't really gods because they were made by our hands. They're mad about this. They're angry. One shop owner gets his other uh, you know, buddies in line, his uh, companions in the business and the trade, and says, listen, this guy is a detriment to us. He's hurting our business. We need to remind everywhere he's gone, the trade of idols has plummeted. Isn't that an awesome thing? Because people were turning from these false gods to the one true God and didn't have any need for these idols any longer. It was phenomenal. Talk about radical change. And as things continued, they brought him before the judge at the gates. That judge did not want to rule on that manner. He says, we have courts for this. You deal with it there. The riot breaks out. They're more worried about the riot. Uh, they're more worried uh, about the, uh, the, the commotion that the Romans would view this as. And so they just say, no, no, just handle it through the courts. Deal with it there. And let Paul alone. And as you go on in chapter 19, it's amazing. So many people get saved. Do you know what they end up doing next? taking all of their books on paganism and witchcraft and burning them, getting rid of them all because they don't need it anymore. And they were quite uh, expensive. I mean, their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the gospel having its effect on this city changed the economy, changed the landscape. People were now burning books that were offensive to God through paganism and witchcraft and so on and so forth, magic and sorcery. All of that was eliminated because of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul finally leaves there, he comes back in a short time later to see the elders who he had left in place there in chapter 20, and he warns them thoroughly, knowing that this was going to be the last time that he would see the elders there in Ephesus, he warns them saying, be careful because after I leave, there are going to be wolves coming in to your mist in sheep's clothing. They're going to come from outside, they're going to come from within, and they are going to try to steal you away. And the Ephesian church heeded that warning. And as we fast forward now 30 years later, we find that in the area of approval, the Ephesians are still very, very diligent to test those who say they're apostles, but then found them to be false. They heeded the warning of Paul in Acts chapter 20. They saw what the gospel did, how it changed the landscape of their city. Read it for yourself. It's an amazing an event to take place. To see the gospel impact in such a dramatic fashion, in a, in a powerful way. Don't miss that. But yet something happened 30 years later. Something has occurred. And they're still doing a lot of really good things. And they're still heeding the words of Paul from Acts chapter 20, which we'll see in a moment. But Jesus comes to them and says, listen, I am the one who has the seven stars within my hands, the seven messengers of the seven churches. I am the one that walks amongst the golden lampstands. 
And by that attribute, he is giving them a, um, a warning or, or a preface to his judgment. He is showing how this attribute actually deals with what he has got issue with them over. So what does it mean, one who walks amongst the lampstands and has the seven golden, uh, seven stars in his hands? Well, let's take a look at this. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, and that word angel could simply mean messenger. Some believe that it is referring simply to the pastor or the overseer of the church in Ephesus. Let's talk about that for a moment because they had quite a quite uh, a few very well-known people who ministered in the church in Ephesus. Started with Paul. Then there was Apollos who went there and ministered. Then there was Timothy who took it all over as the shepherd of the church. But tradition has it that one of the apostles relocated to Ephesus and he brought somebody with him. And tradition, historical tradition has it that that's where the apostle John relocated with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so talk about a plethora of good leaders, right? Paul, Timothy, Apollos, John, all right? Good pastoral staff, all right? And the church was flourishing there in Ephesus. And Jesus introduces himself in a way that they needed to recognize. Let's look at this. Write the words of him that is Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. First, just to remind ourselves that these images come from chapter 1. If you look with me in verses 17 and on, you see that these things, I'm sorry, uh, chapter uh, verse 12 and on to verse 16, you will see that Jesus is described in a very uh, symbolic way using images to speak of different characteristics and attributes of him. And certain attributes are selected in his introduction of himself to these churches. And in this case, the two attributes that are chosen to introduce Jesus to this church is the one who has the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The two attributes that we find clearly articulated in this particular address is the attributes of his deity, such as his omnipotence and his omnipresence. Jesus is especially present among his churches, knowing firsthand the situation in each of them. He wants them to know that he knows them well enough, that he is amongst them that he is sovereignly reigning over them because he is the head of the church. Remember last week we established that Jesus Christ is no longer the suffering servant. Now he is the risen King and Lord. He says very clearly that he has the seven stars within his hand. Now it is interesting that the emperor of that time, the emperor, the emperor, emperor of Rome, um, Domitian, uh, he, at the birth of his son, he deified his own son, okay? 
So this emperor already claimed that he was a deity. He demanded people to worship him, Domitian did, as a deity. And when his son was born, he declared his son a deity. To proclaim the deity of his son, Domitian created a coin. And you can actually find these online today. Uh, not on eBay, but pictures of them. And you could find these coins. And it was a picture of his child over the whole world. And you know what his child had in his hands that was over him? Seven stars. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the one who has the seven stars in my hand. I am the one who's in complete authority over all rulers of this world. I am the sovereign king. I am the risen Lord. And it is interesting that if you go through the seven churches, you will find attributes of the pagan influences of Rome within um, their uh, adoption and Jesus countering that, showing him superior to any pagan thinking that they would have adopted in place of him. It is an essence that we call preeminence. It is something that is no longer talked about in Christianity, but the book of Colossians makes it clear that the only proper position for Christ to hold in a person's life is that of preeminence. He is the King. He is above all things. In fact, listen to these words. Colossians 1, 15-20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Phenomenal passage of scripture to be memorized by every Christian to show that Christ may must have a place of preeminence in the lives of the individuals and in the churches. And that's the way he introduces himself to the church of Ephesus. I am preeminent. I am the, I am the risen king. There is no one before me. Please understand that. And then he lists their approval. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. I know your works, number 1. Your toil, number 2. Your patience, number 3. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, number four. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In this we see a serving, sacrificing, steadfast, separate church. That's what we see here. They were a serving church. I know your works. I know what you are doing, and it's in a positive manner. I know what your uh, your activities are. I know what you're about. I know what you are doing for my name's sake. 
And I know you're toiling. Those works are done in toil, which means they're sacrificing hard work under stressful conditions and under difficult circumstances, but are willing to do everything possible to get the job done. They're willing to lay it all on the line to do what Christ has asked them to do, no matter what the circumstances are. Patient endurance, they're steadfast. They're persevering. They're overcoming. They're pushing forward in their walk with the Lord. Whatever resistance the world gives them, they push back. And they will not endure. That word endure means put up with evil. Those who would harm the doctrinal integrity of the church. And what do they do? They test them. And it's a vetting process. And it was very thorough. It was very rigorous. And they would go to great lengths to test or to vet those who would call themselves apostles, proving that they were false. Now think about the last words of Paul to this church. That wolves would come in and after I leave. They're still heeding that warning and actively, proactively addressing those who would come in and discovering who is truly of God and who is not. Those are things to be commended for, right? Good things, great things. In the last three, he goes on to say, enduring patiently and bearing up and not having grown weary. These are a little different in emphasis, and they are talking about the church's capacity. He means to say, I know the capacity that you have to continue weathering the storm. And you could keep doing exactly what you're doing now. You have the strength to do that. And you're bearing up. Even if things got more difficult, you would stand up and do what you are currently doing at this moment. Why? Because you have not given up, you have not grown weary, you have not lost heart, you have not grown discouraged, you're pushing forward. So not only do he talk about what they're doing and commending them for that, but he also sees within their capacity to continue on doing the same thing that they're doing, the good things that they're doing, even if more difficulty were to occur, and the reason why is that they have not lost heart, God is commending them for all of this. These are great things, right? Keeping the doctrinal integrity of the church sound to test those who would come in, calling themselves apostles who were not. Obviously, this church was well taught. Paul, Timothy, Apollos, John. Wow, that's incredible just in and of itself. But then Jesus says this. Look at with me in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, And this you have, one more thing he adds, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The word hate there is one of the strongest words used to show disdain. He's saying, I detest them. A very strong word to be used by our Lord. Does the Lord hate anything? Yeah, he hates the Nicolaitans and the works of them. The Nicolaitans are mentioned twice throughout the entire Bible, both in the book of Revelation, both in the second chapter in the church of Pergamos and in the church of Ephesus. Their name is used in a very specific way, okay? Their name is used in a way to state that they were, they were a group of people that everyone had common knowledge of, okay? 
when these writers were writing, obviously they're writing through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration, but they're writing here now, and they're writing and he's listing the Nicolaitans as if he anticipates his readers knowing who they are. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of that. Even though they're a group that may have existed beforehand, but now they are in the public spotlight. How many of you a year ago had ever heard of the group ISIS? Do we hear about it today? When we say ISIS, we all know what we're talking about, right? But if you would have asked me in 2013, I don't think I would have known what ISIS was. Same was true when, you know, we were dealing with Al-Qaeda. You know, Al-Qaeda's been around for years, but all of a sudden they had risen to the surface and they were now in the uh, public hearing and everybody knew who Al-Qaeda was, even though they existed, you know, decades prior to that. That's the way this is written grammatically. That they would have known that the Nicolaitans were someone to deal with. They would have had common knowledge. It was a name that's used very, very directly and with anticipation that the readers would know who they're referring to. Now, up until just the last, I don't know how many years, uh, the last 100, 200 years, when we have found more and more archaeology and more and more evidence and more and more uh, writings of that time and early afterwards, we find out that Irenaeus, Hippolytus, and Clement, all early church fathers, wrote about the Nicolaitans. And they all had the same thing to say about them. That the Nicolaitans were either the product of or students of one of the deacons selected in Acts chapter 6, Nicholas, the Pelasatite from Antioch. And their writings, these, old, uh, these writings that we have from Irenaeus, uh, I always call him Hippopotamus, but that's not his name, <laughs> Hippolytus and Clement. In fact, Clement wrote about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats in the life of sameless self-indulgence. And that was the accusation. The Nicolaitans were one who believed that the spirit and the flesh were two complete different entities. And though one could believe in Jesus Christ and their spirit be saved, their flesh was evil it had, uh, it had no bearing on their spirit, and they took what is called an antinomian position. And that means that they could do anything and get away with it. They took the grace of God as license, and the sins of the flesh had no bearing on the spirit. So they could sin sexually, they could sin uh, mentally, physically, and it had no bearing on their relationship with God because that was a spiritual, a spiritual connection. Now Clement was a little different in his writing than the other two when he said that it wasn't Nicholas per se, but the students of Nicholas who got what he was talking about grace incorrectly. Things for you to consider and to throw out there. The word means Lord over. 
Some scholars believe that this is the group in its infancy that 2 Peter and Jude were referring to when Jude wrote to us, and we just read it, that I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I couldn't because men have crept in stealthily. And what is he going at? In sensuality and so on and so forth. That they were describing the, the elementary, the beginning of this group, the Nicolaitans, which now later in the book of Revelation, had come to full force and were a sect to be dealt with. The term simply means to be lorded over. And if you look with me to chapter 2, we're going to jump ahead just quickly and get to the church of Pergamo. It is written here about them, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual, sexual morality. So then you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now remember when we were reading Jude to describe these individuals who stealthily came in amongst them, who was one of the examples that Jude used to compare them to? Balaam. Very interesting. Something for you to consider. 30, 40 years ago, we simply took the definition of the name lording over to identify these individuals and believed that these individuals wanted to create a hierarchy between man and God. But now I think we have more information that we need to consider because of the evidence that we have here. We, have to, we take the evidence of the early church uh, writers and fathers into consideration. They are not you know, inspired works, but we take them in as historical works and traditions and say that the Nicolaitans lording over the people and what they were lording over was their sensuality, stating that they could indulge their flesh without any repercussions to the Spirit something for you to consider. As we continue on, he then moves into chapter 2, verse 4, with the accusation. Look with me. But to the church in Ephesus, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. First notice that he is saying that this love was abandoned. It's, a, it's an interesting Greek word. It means that you're moving in a direction, and as you are moving, you leave something behind, and you keep going forward. So as you are on your way, think of it this way. Remember we talked about the road trip down to Disney World? And if you had one of those family truckster wagons, you put a lot of the suitcases on top. So think of it this way. You're driving to Disney World with the suitcases on top in the family truckster, and as you're driving through Indiana... You hear something, but you just keep going. And it realized that it was your suitcase. But now you are in Florida or in Georgia and discover that your suitcase is missing. That's what this word abandon means. You're moving along, something occurs, you leave something behind, but you keep moving forward. And you don't realize it until someone brings it to your attention. They abandon their first love. They thought they were doing something 
when in actuality they were not doing it all. They thought they were being blessed for being right with God when in actuality they were not at all. They abandoned, now notice this phrasing, the love you had at first. The love you had at first. Growing up, I grew up reading this verse as your first love. You have abandoned your first love. Please know and understand that the Greek language is so comprehensive that there are, I believe, 18 different ways to write Jesus loved John, or vice versa, John loved Jesus. There's 18 different ways to write that. I believe this rendering is closer to the original language than my first love. And let me explain why. When it talks about my first love, the word first gives us the impression of a priority, the love that I should have first. And they equate that love then to God, rightfully so. The very first love that we should be concerned about is our first love towards God. That's encompassed here. But what that phrasing leaves out is another aspect of that same dimension. And that's what I'm going to show you this evening. There's an aspect that is lost in, you know, you've left your first love, where it sounds like it's a singular love. But the love that you had at first can also mean a duality. And let me explain what that is. Throughout the Bible from Jesus' own words through the New Testament to this point. The love of God went hand in hand with the love of who? Others. Let me show you. Jesus said, Matthew 22, 34-40, But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and then one of the lawyers asked Him a question to test Him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind. We'd all say amen to that. This is the first, I'm sorry, this is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He went on to say, John went on to say that if you turn with me to 1 John, Listen to what he says here in verse 13 of chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in Him and that He is in us because He has given us the Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son, the Savior, into the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in His uh, in love abides in God and God abides in Him. And by this... Love perfected with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment because, because as He is also, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears does not, um, has not perfected love. We love because He has first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he he has seen, cannot love God in whom he cannot see. There's this intertwined understanding of this love. That the love of God also encompasses the love that we should have 
for one another. And I believe that what is denoted here in this accusation is not only their abandonment of their being driven by the love of Jesus Christ, but also for the love of one another. I think it's a duality here. It's not only just the love of God, which we want to focus on normally, it is the love in perspective that not only is it vertical, but it's also horizontal here. And if you look at this, you will see that in each case, in each case, these go hand in hand. So this church was doing a lot of great things. They were testing those who were false. They were enduring. They hated the Nicolaitans. But they had abandoned the love that they had at first. The love of God and the love of one another. And this is the indictment. 35 years earlier, Paul wrote to the Ephesians 20 times the word love is used in the book of Ephesians from the very beginning to the very end. Let me just give you some examples. This is the book that was written to them after the establishment of that church. For this reason, verse 1 of chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all of the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers. When he gets to his exhortations at the end of the book, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then in closing the book, he says this again. Peace to you, the brothers, and love with faith, from the God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus with the love that is incorruptible. 20 times he says that. And in each case, the love of God is intertwined with the love for one another. So their first, what they abandoned was the duality of both. And they, they go hand in hand. You know, how John asks us the question, how can you say you love God who you can't see when you don't love your brothers who you do see? And that's the problem. And then he tells them to go on and fix it. But before we go, listen to these commentators and what they wrote. Most of the Ephesian Christians were now second generation believers. And though they had retained purity of doctrine and life and had maintained a high level of service, They were lacking in deep devotions to Christ. How the church today needs to heed the same warning that orthodoxy and service are not enough. Christ wants believers' hearts as well as their hands and their heads. Another one commentator went on to write, the Ephesian church was a doctrinally pure church. Sometimes a focus on doctrinal purity will make a congregation cold, suspicious, intolerant of diversity, critical. When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless um, formalism. Adhersion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and light of love to Jesus departs. C.H. Spurgeon. I love that. That is so true. You will find churches that are doctrinally pure and orthodox, but they are as cold as ice towards one another. 
They are so suspicious of one another. They are so critical of anyone who is not part of their tribe, part of their church, and everybody else is wrong and they are right. It's when love dies. And that's what I believe we have happening here. But then he admonishes them as we conclude in verses 5-7. through He asks them to remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you first did. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How do you remedy this problem? There are three steps to consider. Number one, remember. Beginning by remembering what it was once like. Recalling what it was like when you were serving God out of a heart of love. Remembering those early days, possibly, of your Christian life. This word remembering is used also in the same regards to the prodigal son who was off in a distant land and he was working amongst the swine and all of a sudden it came to him, he remembered how good he had it back at home. A light goes on. Considering where a change took place. When things became just a to-do list for Christ rather than out of a passion and a heart for God. When we do it when we, for, because we love Him, we do it because we love His people, He asks those who have forgotten or who have abandoned this love to first remember, to recall, to reconsider their position. And in one's doing so, that remembering is to bring acknowledgement to allow the individual to know that something has changed. If you stop and consider and remember that, yes, uh uh-oh, I have abandoned my love, what are you saying to yourself? You're saying something's gone wrong, right? I need to fix it. I need to repent, and that's the very next thing that he says. Once we realize what we have done, we then repent. Confess our sin before God and change the course of our direction. And how do we do that? By repeating. He says here, do again. And do the works that you did at first. He is not asking them to stop in their pursuit of doctrinal purity. He's asking them to regain the love that they once had. Notice what he's saying here. He's not telling them to put the brakes on everything and then go back and find your love. He's saying find your love and continue doing what you're doing. Do the works that you first did, cultivating the heart of devotion to the Lord. That's really where it all stems from. When I first became a Christian, I remember those early days of devotional life. When I'm just simply reading the Bible in my bed and feeling like God is speaking directly to me, speaking to my heart, encouraging me, edifying me, convicting me, challenging me through His Word, leading me to a prayer life, a joy for fellowship, looking to be with the saints at every moment of the day that I could, 
serving others because of the love that I have for Jesus and because of all that he has done for me and to know that Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And then worshiping him not with just the accolades of my mouth, the songs in which I sing, but the entirety, the totality of my life. And so you might be saying, Pastor, how do I start all of this? I find that we need to go back to the beginning. And I believe that we have those type of devotional lives when we first get saved because it's at that moment in time that we are so uh, astutely aware of all that Christ has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. When I got saved, I knew I was forgiven. And realizing at that moment all that God had to do to allow me to be forgiven. As I put my faith and trust in Him, I could only do so because He first stepped out of heaven, subjected Himself to His own creation, and died on my behalf. And He didn't die a simple, painless death. He died an excruciating, horrific death on my behalf. He stepped out of heaven as the exalted Son of God into the form of a humble, humble human. And He did that for me. See, I need to regain that love by first remembering that God loved me and demonstrated that love for me by stepping out of heaven and dying for me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Remember what John just said a moment ago? We love him because he what? He first loved us. So if I'm going to regain that love for Jesus Christ, I must remember that he loved me and then remember the manner in which he demonstrated that love, which was the cross. You want to regain a renewed sense of love for Jesus Christ? Remember all that he has done for you that you could not do for yourself. Remember that grace that was shown to you at that moment. But know here that he warned them very carefully. If you do not, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. No longer will I recognize you as a church of mine. It will be a mere shell of of what once was. And though it started off in fantastic fashion and had the impact upon the society in which it did, at this point, they are at a crossroads. They are to repent, and if they do, they will continue. If they don't, they won't. And though they may continue for a long time afterwards, and we know through the 5th century they did, but we don't know if they heeded this and if their operation was a mere organization or a living organism in Christ. And lastly, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's asking you and I who are filled with the Holy Spirit to consider and to hear and to understand what he is saying about this church. This church is made up of individuals, so each one of us as an individual needs to consider, am I currently doing what I am doing for Christ for, because of the love that I have for Him and the love that I have for others? That's the question you need to ask yourself. If not, then you need to remember, you need to repent, and you need to repeat. 
And you need to once again recall all that Christ has done for you to show and demonstrate His love for you that you may return that love in fashion. And then He promises to those who conquer, some of you are more familiar with the word overcome, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Obviously he is referring none other to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. He is talking about a Christian enjoying eternal life, uh, the life that he has always promised and wanted and desired his creation to enjoy, but they fell in their sin. He is saying, you will be restored, so overcome, come back to me, etc. But there's another play on words here that's fascinating. The temple of uh, Artemis was... Uh, built around a shrine. Does anybody know what was in that shrine that was at the center of that temple? I'll buy a coffee if you know. A what? An elephant. Good try, but no. Time to move from the picture Bible there, Rita. Um, A tree. And guess what they called that tree? The tree of life. Pilgrims came from all over the world to see this shrined tree. This is where life was supposedly given. Once again, Jesus Christ showing himself superior to any pagan type of understanding that the tree of life began with him. The tree of life ends with him. Revelation chapter 22. Fascinating. And he says, no, to you who overcome, I will give you the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. It's not located in any man-made temple there in Ephesus. It is one that I have created for you to enjoy for all of eternity because I am the one that walks amongst the lampstands and has the seven stars within my hand. As they wrote As one commentator wrote, the temple of Artemis was built on a tree shrine. And a tree frequently symbolized Ephesus or its goddess. Whereas the Ephesian believer once viewed the tree of Artemis as the seat of divine life and the intermediary between that life and human nature, they now learn that the life eternal is in the paradise of God which was theirs through the cross of him who died and rose again. Warren Worsby asks us a question that we all need to consider as we close. The church of Ephesus was the careless church made up of careless believers who neglected their love for Christ and one another. Are we here this evening guilty of that same neglect.